to thank you that you have come, you have, um, by your incarnation and then your life and then by your death and your resurrection and your ascension and now by your rule and reign, you have begun uh, this process of vanquishing every enemy of ours. And your word tells us that the last enemy to be defeated is death and that then then will come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for that hope. And we thank you that we can look to you as a reigning king to bring that great victory and the consummation of all things at the end of history. So we look for it. Uh, we thank you for it. And we pray that you'd be with us this evening as we think about these things. And we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. We, um, we are uh, working our way through uh, this little book, God's Big Picture. We're looking at the storyline uh, of the Bible, tracing the storyline of the Bible. And um, thus far, we've... Um, looked at the pattern of the kingdom, which you see in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we've looked at the kingdom perished, which is the result of sin and disobedience, rebellion, the fall. And what we want to do this week and then next week, actually, because I don't think we're going to get all the way through this tonight, um, is, is look at uh, the promise of the kingdom. That's the, the language that um, Vaughn Roberts uses uh, in this little book, and it's, uh, it's good, alliterated language. And again, if you just flip back, if you have a copy of the book, back to page 157, uh, you have there a nice schematic of the storyline of the Bible and how this thing uh, proceeds. And um, I, I'm, I'm kind of inserting some stuff in here. If, you know, if he had asked me for my input on this, uh, I, I would have said, which he didn't and he won't. Um, but I, I would have said, you know, Vaughn, I, I would love for you to spend a little bit more time talking about this first promise that God makes after the fall and actually sort of tracing that theme from Genesis 3.15, past Genesis 12, across the pages of the Old Testament, and into the New Testament, and then down to the end of the Old Testament. And that's really what I'd like to do tonight, is, is trace this initial promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15, and look at some Old Testament passages which sort of keep the imagery alive that is... Um, that is first presented to us in Genesis 3.15. And then I'd like to move into the New Testament and look at some New Testament passages which show us that same imagery as it begins to be fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. And that, that imagery uh, is the imagery of, um, of victorious, heroic conquest. Okay? It's, it's the imagery of a conflict uh, and the imagery of a conqueror who's going to come and who, when he comes, he's going he's to overthrow the evil one. He's going to eradicate evil from his kingdom and he's going to restore everything uh, to, its, to its original condition and, and its original condition then being restored becomes its permanent condition. The new heaven and the new earth filled with the glory of God and enjoying the shalom of God, the, the peace, the pervasive peace and well-being that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. So I've, I've put a whole bunch of scripture passages up here. They're not in your notes. Um, if I'd been on top of my game, I'd have provided you with a piece of paper that had all of these. So you're going to have to work tonight. You're just going to have to work harder. Okay. But here, these are some passages that we're going to kind of, we're going to kind of blow through. Um, as we follow this theme of the promised hero-conqueror who engages in conflict 
with, uh, with the serpent. And if you remember um, back to Genesis 3, the first word that God speaks, you remember, is a word spoken to the serpent. And that, that word uh, is in Genesis 3, verse 14, where God says to the serpent, because you have done this, and I, and I, 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 just, I had this thought a couple of times this last week, um, I don't know if I mentioned it last night or if I, or uh, last Sunday night or if, uh, if, if it was at the refuge on Friday morning uh, where we, we talked about some of this stuff. But I, I find it so interesting that after the, after the sin of the man and the woman, the disobedience of the man and the woman, the first word that God speaks is not to the man and the woman. It's to the serpent. And, and my first thought was, you know, if I'd been a, if I'd been a smarter, more insightful parent of young children, when my kids got in trouble, my first word would not have been to my kids. My first word would have been to the evil one, the one who stands behind every act of disobedience who seduces people into believing a lie, and because they believe the lie, they then commit those acts of disobedience. And I, I wish, with my, you know, with my kids sitting right here, I would have spoken past them in, into space, right, into the invisible realm, and said, just you remember, your day is coming. The day is coming when you're going to be crushed overthrown and removed from the whole of God's realm. And when that happens, my kids will never disobey again. And then turn to my kids and say, now we do have some business that we need to deal with here. Right? Which is exactly what God does. So for you parents of young children, just sort of keep that in mind when you're dealing with your rascal kids. Okay? That's the, that's the first word. I mean, God has just... He's interacted with the man and the woman, but the first word he speaks is a word of judgment upon the serpent. And he says what he says in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then comes this first promise, which you're very familiar with now. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And what God is saying, of course, in the first part of that verse, in a, in a, in a cryptic sort of way, what God is saying is that there will be a perpetual hostility between the seed of the woman, right, the seed of promise, the seed of faith. There will be a perpetual hostility between her seed and the seed of the serpent, the seed of unbelief and rebellion. So what's being presented to us in the first part of this verse is the idea that there will be two people. Two peoples will emerge across the whole of human history. One people will be the seed of promise and the seed of faith. The other people will be the seed of unbelief and the seed of rebellion. And they will, they will be in constant conflict with each other. Um, just sort of pastorally, practically, just a, a bit of application. Uh, we should never be surprised. As Christians, we should never be surprised by the fact that we are opposed. We should never be surprised by the fact that we are persecuted. We should never be surprised by the fact that we are misunderstood, misrepresented, and all the rest of the kinds of things that God's people have experienced. We should not be surprised when seemingly rational people act irrationally when they encounter the gospel and when they encounter the people of God. God is just telling us there's going to be this hostility that's going to characterize Life between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent across all of human history. 
But then the emphasis shifts, doesn't it? And this is the part of the verse that really um, is the seed for this unfolding promise of God that he is going to bring a hero, conqueror, king who's going to do this work of crushing the head of the serpent. God speaks to the serpent and says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Right? One individual from the seed of the woman is going to emerge and he will engage the serpent and in the course of engaging the serpent, he will suffer a wound to his heel, right? A wound which is not a mortal wound, unless you, I mean, it conceivably could be. You could go swimming in Lake Victoria and you could have one of those, one of those little bacteria that, that thrive in Lake Victoria because of all of the junk that's been dumped into the edge of the lake for decades and generations. And those, those little critters can work their way through your skin uh, under the surface of your skin and infect your blood, and it can be lethal. Okay, But that's not what we're talking about here, right? Um, we're talking about this promised seed of the woman who comes and who engages the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to come and he's going to crush, step on, keep that imagery in your head, He's going to step on the head of the serpent, crushing the head of the serpent. And when you, when, you, when you step on the head, you're inflicting a mortal blow, right? You're, you're inflicting a wound that results in death. That's the promise. Somebody's going to come. And when he comes, that is what he's going to do. Now, that's the first promise of the scriptures regarding God's purpose to redeem, right? I mean, don't, I, I just find that very, very interesting. It's not a promise about forgiveness, right? It's not a promise about any number of other things that we could think about related to our understanding of the gospel. The first promise is a promise about evil being conquered, crushed, overthrown, and eradicated. I mean, if you cut off the head, you've killed the whole thing. You've eradicated the whole thing. And that's the promise here. Now, what's interesting is what I find this wonderfully encouraging and interesting is how that sort of imagery, that that idea of a conflict, um, that idea even using some of the specific imagery of a head or of stomping, it's interesting to me how that imagery is maintained and perpetuated through the rest of the Old Testament. Look at Judges chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. This, this story is the story of Deborah and Barak, um, and it involves Sisera, uh, who flees on foot um, after this battle between the people of Israel and, uh, and their enemies, right? The people of God versus the people of the world, the people of faith versus the people of unbelief. Um, and you read uh, verse 15 that the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Heresheth Hagoyim and all the armies. Try and say that real fast six times. I got lucky doing it once. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, 
the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabe and the king of Hatzor and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened, she, note, she, opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. Tough way to go, right? But what's, what's, fascinating, I mean, what's fascinating to me is the detail that we get regarding his demise, his death, that it involves what? Crushing his head. And, and that a woman is involved, right? Which is a huge humiliation, ladies. I'm sorry, but it's one thing to die at the hands of a warrior, it's another thing entirely to die at the hands of a woman. It's just a, just a big deal, and we'll see that in just a second. Now, again, so what's going on here? Well, the, it, it, isn't the detail striking concerning Sisera, who in his moment, in his day, is a kind of an incarnation of everything that the serpent is? He stands against the people of God. He stands against the purposes of God. He's one who defies the true God. And the end for him is a tent peg through the temple, a wound inflicted not by the seed of a woman, but by a woman. It's just, it's very interesting imagery. Look at Judges chapter 9, verses 50 through 57. This, uh, this actually is the story of, of King Abimelech, who is one of the sons of Gideon, one of the descendants of Gideon. And if you read the whole story of Gideon, and we don't, it, it's, you should do that. You should just read Gideon's story. Um, little, just a little parenthetical thing about Gideon. We, we marvel at Gideon in, in many ways. We marvel at his faith. We marvel at God's power as it's put on display in Gideon's life. Uh, when God uh, tells Gideon to send all kinds of armed people away to their homes, and Gideon ends up with a very, very small army to go out to do battle against the armies of God. And why is that? Uh, because one of the themes, one of the recurring themes through the Old Testament is that it is the Lord, as was true in, in the experience of Sisera, it is the Lord, or in the experience of Barak, it is the Lord who gives victory. It's not the strength of an army. It's not the number of horses and the number of chariots you have. But it is the Lord who is pleased to manifest his power in the midst of weakness who gives the victory. So there's a lot about Gideon's life that's very instructive, a lot for us to look at in Gideon's life. But Gideon makes some significant mistakes. And, his, he, so, he, and so he's a, he's, a, he's a mixed bag, which is also very instructive, because all of these judges, all of these kings, all of these people, including somebody like David, who we'll look at in just a minute, all of them are imperfect, Right? And in the midst of their imperfection, what do they make us long for? The perfect, the perfect judge, the perfect king, the perfect conqueror. Well, Abimelech is one of the sons uh, of Gideon, uh, is engaged in a power grab, and he becomes king, and he, in fact, is an evil king. Uh, And Abimelech, uh, makes this assault. So he's an Israelite. Okay, that's, that's important in this story. He's an Israelite. So Abimelech makes this assault upon this, uh, this town uh, called Thebes. Verse 50, Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. 
but there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up to the roof of the tower, and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And then here's this really cool thing again. And a certain woman, unnamed, right? I mean, not only is she a woman, but she's an anonymous woman. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And so the young man thrust him through and he died. But see there again, there's that imagery. Here you have, here you have the kind of the personification of what is, what is, what is wrong, what is unrighteous, what is evil. And what's the kind of imagery that's used to, and, and he's an Israelite, right? But what's the kind of imagery that's used? Well, again, it, 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 it involves crushing the skull. And there's obviously the role that the woman plays. I mean, obviously a takeaway from this is that God is going to destroy unrighteousness wherever he finds it. He's going to destroy unrighteousness wherever he finds it. If he finds it among the Goyim, the Gentiles, the nations, he's going to destroy it there. But if he finds it among the people of God, He's going to destroy it there as well. So, wherever God encounters, finds unrighteousness, his, his purpose is to eradicate and to destroy that unrighteousness. And then you get this great, this great story in 1 Samuel 17. Uh, we made reference to a couple of weeks ago, the story of David and Goliath. And, and you know that story well enough. You can, you can fill in the details. It, it's one of those passages I mentioned in, in the inquirer's class this morning, it was either this passage or another passage. I think it was another passage. Yeah, it was, it was Leviticus 16, I think. We were talking um, about this, the, the description of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And I just suggested to the folks, you know, this is a passage you ought to read this week. And you ought to reread it and reread it. And, and you ought to remember ninth grade biology when your ninth grade biology teacher gave you a, a, a fish or a frog or something. I actually remember this. I don't know if you, and, and, and said, okay, now I want you to take this thing and I want you to tell me, I want you to look at it and I want you to tell, I want you to write down everything you can observe about this frog or this fish, right? And so what do you do? Five minutes, you look at it, it's got two eyes, a couple of nostrils, a mouth, it's got some legs. And you, you bring your piece of paper up to the, to the teacher, and the teacher says, you're not finished. Go back and keep looking. Go back and keep looking. And, and we should do that with, with 1 Samuel 17, because there is so much in 1 Samuel 17 that tells us about this conflict that is that is promised in Genesis 3.15 and which you see fulfilled in the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Right? So here, so David and Goliath. I mean, give me some of the details of the story. What is Goliath? He's the personification of everything that opposes God and his purposes and his people. In fact, every conscious moment, what is he doing? If you read 1 Samuel 17. He's blaspheming God. I mean, he's just, you know, he's, he's being blasphemous. Who knows exactly what he was saying, but that's what the text tells us, that he was blaspheming God. So here he is, right? This big, strong, mighty warrior with, with a weaver's beam for, a, you know, for the, the staff of his spear. And then there's David. Little old David, right? And you, and you, I mean, you can go to, you can, this is just great stuff. It's great fun. So he, he, he doesn't like what's going on. And so what does he do? He says, isn't anybody going to go take this guy out? I mean, here's this blasphemous guy 
blaspheming the God of Israel, somebody needs to go take him out. Nobody will go. I'll go. I'll go. So he goes to Saul and says, that's a rough paraphrase, says, I'll go. And so what do they do? Remember what they do? What do they do? They put the armor of, of Saul's armor bearer on him, right? And, and he, I mean, he looks like a 12-year-old with, with the equipment of a professional linebacker in the NFL, right? He says, I can't do this with this. I can't even get around. So he takes it all off, picks up a stone. Stone, that's an interesting thing in the scriptures. Jesus refers to himself as the rock or the stone, and he also refers to himself as the stone of stumbling. The scriptures refer to him that way. So look, you're either delivered by the stone or you're crushed by the stone. The stone either becomes a safe and secure place for you to stand or the stone becomes the thing that destroys you and crushes you. It's just, it's cool stuff, this imagery. So David picks up five stones, slips them in his little pocket, goes out against Goliath. And where does he hit him? Where does he hit him? Bingo. In the forehead. Is that what kills him? Knocks him down, but it doesn't kill him. What kills him? He decapitates him, right? He takes, he takes his own sword and lops his head off. Now, I've never lopped anybody's head off. But maybe I'm pressing this a little too far. But let's work with it. I mean, I think if I'm, if I'm a 13, 14-year-old guy or 17 or however old he was, and there's this big old Goliath who's on the ground, and I pick up his sword and I'm going to lop his head off, I'm probably going to plant my foot squarely in the middle of his chest and whack, whack away. And hew that head off. Right? Again, it's just this, it's this imagery of conflict with, with this sort of focus on the crushing of the skull and somebody who does it not in strength, his own strength, or in the strength of horses, or with the strength of an army, but who does it in weakness and humility. And that sounds, doesn't it, a lot like the squirrel. It sounds a lot like Jesus. So, and then here's this last one from the Old Testament. And I, I just, honestly, folks, I swear to you, this verse was not in my Bible until this last week. For those of, for those of you who are new, Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3, for those of you who are newer to, uh, to Christ the King, I, I just, every once in a while, I make reference to some passage that I've read just in the course of my, my Bible reading. And uh, yesterday I was reading Malachi. I'm reading the prophets, the minor prophets. And yesterday I was reading Malachi. And I swear to you this verse was not in my Bible until yesterday. I swear it. I've read Malachi a Brazilian times. And I swear it was not Malachi 4 for old day that is shall set that blaze, says the Lord, that it will leave neither root nor branch, but for you. Who fear my name, the righteousness Folks, that is the next to the last word that is spoken before 400 years of silence and the appearing of John the Baptist. The last word that's spoken is, 
Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And Jesus tells us, that John the Baptist is in fact the promised Elijah, the forerunner, the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. Right? But the word that's spoken right before that is verse 3. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. It's it. I mean, it just, what's it doing? What is the Bible doing with all this stuff? And there are other passages we could, we could look at. It's, it's keeping alive this idea, this image, this vision that the day is going to come when the promise of Genesis 3.15 will be fulfilled. Okay? Well, then you get, right, 400 years of silence. This is, we should put, we should put Malachi on here someplace. We'll just put Malachi right here. And then you have 400 years of silence before John the Baptist arrives. And when John comes, he comes announcing the appearing. Look at, look at Mark chapter 1, just as an example. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And by the way, I think it's a legitimate thing, very legitimate thing, to think of Mark's gospel as a description of the beginning of the good news concerning Jesus. The good news doesn't end with the end of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is the beginning of the description of the good news concerning Jesus Christ. And that good news concerning Jesus Christ continues actually in the gospel in the, in the book of Acts, right? I think I've mentioned this to you, right? Luke wrote two books. First book is about Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, his ascension is at the end. The second book is Luke's description of the continuing work of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke says to Theophilus, in my first book, O Theophilus, I told you about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So what's the second book going to be about? It's going to be about what Jesus continues to do and to teach as the ascended reigning King of glory by the power of the Holy Spirit in and through his church. So the story continues, okay? But here is John the Baptist, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then down in verse 14, we read this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And how is the kingdom of God at hand? The kingdom of God is present and is at hand in the arrival of the king, the king. Okay, now, look at Matthew chapter 4. We're not going to look at this in detail, but this is another one of those passages that I just, I mean, this is so much fun. This is one of those passages that you you ought to, just take a look at sometime this week and, um, and just pay attention to some of the details. Pay attention to some of what goes on in Matthew chapter 4 in the description of the temptation of Jesus. Okay? It, it, 
Matthew chapter 4 is a kind of a recapitulation of the original temptation. Okay? Now, what happened in the original temptation? Where was it in the first place? Where was the original temptation? It was in the garden. Okay? And, and what happens in the garden, this place of blessedness and beauty, is that the serpent, who is an alien, makes an assault, I love this, makes an assault upon the garden. He makes an attack upon the garden. He's not supposed to be there. He's an alien. He's a trespasser. And how does he attack the man and the woman? He attacks them by twisting and distorting the word of God. Okay? Where does the temptation take place? Not in a garden, right? It takes place in a wilderness. And whose domain is the wilderness? The serpents. And so here, don't you just love this? And so here is the alien, the one whose real home is in the presence of God in all of his blessing and fullness. And what does he do in the incarnation? He leaves home and he makes an assault upon the realm of the evil one. And when he makes his assault, how does the serpent respond? Same way. Seeking to twist and distort and misapply the word of God. And what does Jesus do? Responds with what? With scripture. With the word of God. With a right understanding of the word of God. He comes making an assault upon the dominion and domain of darkness, the the realm of the serpent. Ephesians 2, Paul refers to the devil as the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus makes an an incursion into and makes an assault upon the domain of the serpent. Let me, I've got to read this passage for you. One of our members put me onto this. Um, about a month ago, and I and I thought I got to go find this. He didn't give me a page, or but he told me the book. The book is The Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. I've had this book for twenty years, and I've never read it. <laughs> but he said you got to go read this. You got to go read how Ferguson describes and casts the temptation of Jesus, and this is what he says. It has been commonplace to interpret Jesus' temptations as analogous to, almost a model for, the tempting of the Christian. Christ was tempted as we are, but resisted, therefore we should resist in similar ways. But this leads to a partial and negative interpretation of his experiences. His temptations constitute an epochal, E-P-O-C-H-A-L, an epochal event. They are not merely personal, but cosmic. They constitute the tempting of the last Adam. True, there is a common bond between his temptations and ours. He really and truly and personally is confronted by dark powers. But the significance of the event does not lie in the ways in which our temptations are like his, but in the particularity and uniqueness of his experiences. He was driven into the wilderness as an assault force. Okay, stop. What precedes the temptation is the baptism of Jesus. What happens at the baptism of Jesus? Jesus is clothed with what? The Spirit of God. 
He is clothed. He is commissioned. He is set apart. He is anointed. He is empowered by the Father with the Spirit. And then Mark tells us, and Matthew does too, Matthew tells us he was led into the wilderness. Mark tells us that Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And this is Ferguson's take on that. He was driven into the wilderness as an assault force. His testing was set in the context of a holy war in which he entered the enemy's domain, absorbed his attacks, and sent him into retreat. That's Matthew 4.11. That's what the text says. Then the devil left him. The devil left him, retreated. Jesus makes an incursion into the realm of the serpent, establishes a beachhead, begins by the right application understanding of the word of God, makes an assault upon the serpent himself and drives him away. The devil flees from him. In the power of the spirit, Jesus advanced as the divine warrior, the God of battles who fights on behalf of his people and for their salvation. His triumph over Satan in the wilderness, his triumph demonstrated that the kingdom of God is near and that the messianic conflict had begun. Booyah! I just think that's fabulous. Honestly, until this member of our church a month or so ago said, you've got to read Sinclair Ferguson on this, I had never read The Temptation in that way. That's why I have all these friends on my bookshelves, by the way. That's why you need to have friends on your bookshelves. Because they teach us stuff like this. Now what happens after that conflict, after the initial conflict? Go back to Mark chapter 1. And this, these next two passages are passages that I've mentioned to you before. Mark tells us in verses 12 and 13 of Mark 1 that the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. The angels were ministering to him. Next verses, Jesus announces the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's gained an initial victory with respect to the enemy. The kingdom of God is near, it's present, it's at hand. What does he begin doing? He begins calling disciples. He begins gathering an army together. And then the first miracle that he performs, verses 21 to 28, Jesus went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Okay, a man with an unclean spirit. A demon-possessed man, right? And the unclean spirit cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? You betcha! You betcha, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And all were amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. So what's Jesus doing? Game on. Game on. We're going to war. His first miracle in Mark's gospel, it's different in John's gospel, um, but his first miracle in Mark's gospel is the miracle of delivering a demon possessed man, making an assault on the king of darkness. That's what he's doing. That's what he comes to do. He comes to be the circumcised. 
comes to be the one who overthrows evil and eradicates evil and delivers people from its bondage. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, is the story of, uh, of Legion. Um, learned this um, from Tim Keller, another book I've got on my shelf, his book, King's Cross, which is a series of expositions of Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 5, that narrative of the healing of Legion is the most detailed, it is the longest and most detailed description of a healing to be found in any of the Gospels. Okay? Now, why do you suppose that is? Well, I think in part it's because of this theme that runs through the Scriptures, this theme of a conquering king who will come, this prospect of a great conflict in which the conquering king is going to destroy evil, crush evil, and deliver people from its bondage. And so here you have a man uh, who's not possessed by one unclean spirit or one demon, but by a legion, thousands. And Jesus, by the power of his word, simply by the power of his word, speaking one word, says to this legion of demons come out of him. Right? I mean, it, it, you can read it. It's in Mark chapter 5. Um, there's, there's no... It, it's remarkable, folks. There's no massive display of power. There's no you know, massive display of force. It is simply Jesus, the incarnate word, the conquering hero, the promised serpent crusher, coming clothed in the power of the Spirit, speaking a word and bringing deliverance to a demon-possessed man. He then gets dressed, clothed in his right mind, and wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus says, sorry, you can't come. Go tell everybody that I've got to go. So he becomes incarnate for them. That's Matthew chapter 5. Now, here's another great passage that picks up on the same theme. Luke chapter 10. And this, this is where this begins. It begins to segue from Jesus to his church. Okay. Um, I, I really do. I don't know. I've, I've found myself thinking about this a fair amount the last, I don't know, the last several years. It's sort of, it seems to me that it's, it's kind of at a psychological level, it's easy for us to, to kind of get to the end of Revelation 22, close our Bibles and say, okay, I've finished the story, and, and now it's just sort of waiting for Jesus to return. You know what I mean? I mean, it just to kind of think, I mean, in some, you know, we have some sort of vague notions, some sort of ambiguous notions that somehow Jesus is ruling and reigning and that that somehow there's something still going on. But, but we, don't, we don't really have this sort of settled conviction, this deep and abiding and settled conviction that Jesus is actually still working. That Jesus is actually still working. Working powerfully and remarkably and pervasively and in a widespread sort of way. But this, this little passage, I think, depicts for us what is exactly going on right now. Okay? Luke 10, verse 17, uh, begins this way. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, what precedes this? Well, what precedes this, not immediately, but, but prior to this, Jesus has the 72, and he sent them out and given them authority to preach the gospel, to go to the villages and the towns throughout the countryside, and to preach the gospel, and he gives them power and authority to cast out demons. So now it's not, it's not, it's not Jesus who's doing this. Who is it? It's the church. It's the church doing this. It's the 72 representing, I think, the church, giving us a picture of the church. 
the church, commissioned by Christ, empowered by Christ, to go in the name of Christ, with his power, with his authority, to continue the ministry that he begins. And here's the interesting feature to this. Why is it that the 72 return with joy? They say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, I don't know what you think about what's going on here, but I think a lot of folks look at that and they think that that's some sort of allusion to or reference to the original fall of Satan. I saw Satan fall like lightning. It isn't, folks. It isn't. What Jesus sees is the effect of the heralding, the preaching of his own gospel as preachers preach that gospel clothed with his power and his authority. What does that kind of ministry have? It has the effect of dethroning Satan. It has the effect of casting him down. It has the effect of limiting, minimizing, in fact, gutting his power. Jesus says, that's, that's, that's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to take my word for it. We can talk about it if you want to. But I'm going to reason with you about this. That what Jesus is saying is that the work that he has begun, as he is clothed That ministry is going to continue to have the same effect among those whom he calls and commissions and clothes. It will have the effect of dethroning Satan. And then look at what he says in verse 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, don't go find a snake handling church. All right. Because that's not what's in view here, folks. What's in view here is all of this imagery, all of this this, um, theological metaphor that gets unfolded across the whole of the Old Testament being captured and taken up as Jesus speaks to his disciples. And Jesus is saying to them, "This this is the kind of effect that being clothed with the power of the Spirit being entrusted with the gospel is going to have. It's going to result in Satan being dethroned. It's going to result in the serpent being crushed under your feet. Right? So, um, Jesus in, in these passages in John makes reference to the ruler of this world being cast out. Okay? How much time do we have? We've got about five minutes. I'll throw this thing out there for you and bait you with it, and then we can talk about it next week, if you want to. You know that passage in Revelation 20 that talks about Satan being bound for a thousand years? That's not happening then. Not off in the future. That happened here. When Jesus comes as king and begins the process of decapitating, dethroning, and crushing the serpent under his feet. That's when Satan was bound, limited. He's like, okay, see, I'm baiting you, so we can talk about it next week. But that's like Al Capone being arrested and thrown in jail in Chicago, Illinois. Is he still alive? Yeah, he is. Does he still have influence? Can he still communicate with his, his little army out there? Yeah, but his power has been severely curtailed by his arrest and his imprisonment. And that's what Jesus does when he comes. Colossians 2, verse 15. Start at 13. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. When, when 
And and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I probably mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. Aren't you struck by the fact that that little thought of Paul's doesn't stop at the end of verse 14? It's a great thing to have all of the accusations that can be brought against me nailed to the cross. It's a great thing to be forgiven. But Paul goes on, doesn't he? He dismissed, or he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what did Christ do on the cross? He died bearing the weight, the burden, the guilt of all of your sin, and in his death, he crushed the head of the serpent and put him to open shame, triumphing over him in the cross. Okay, one last passage, Romans 16, verse 20. This is the fulfillment of Malachi 4. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, what what the heck is he talking about? Well, I really do believe he's talking about all of this. He's, he's He's giving the Romans a big, big vision of the gospel of Jesus, that it is about way more than just their forgiveness. In fact, it's about way more even than their individual and personal restoration. In fact, it's about way more than the cosmos being set free from its bondage to decay, Romans 8. The gospel ultimately is about Satan being crushed under the feet of Christ and those who belong to him. So, and then, you know, then again, you get to the Revelation. You could look at Revelation 12, which I think is kind of the centerpiece of, uh, of the book, uh, where from two perspectives, the earthly perspective and the heavenly perspective, uh, Satan is cast down. He is frustrated. The people of God are delivered and preserved and kept, as well as looking at chapter 20 uh, of the Revelation Um, where God acts powerfully to bind and restrict and significantly curtail the activity of Satan until the day comes when he casts him into the lake of fire and he is consumed forever. Okay, so that's just taking this Genesis 3.15 thing and and trying trying to speed through some passages of the Bible to show you how that theme persists finding its fulfillment um, in Christ and in his work. Okay, it's, it's 7 o'clock. Um, anybody have a yes or no question that I can answer? Or a comment, comment from you, questions, or any message? Hold it up. Right, right. And that's the passage that John quotes in John chapter 3, inviting people to look to Jesus um, to be crushed, bearing the weight of our sin and the guilt of our sin. He is crushed so that we may not be crushed. Okay. All right. So, what are we going to do next week? We're going to we're going to we're going to go from this initial promise to the promise made to Abram, Genesis chapter 12. And and folks, as we do this, I mean, obviously we're 
you know, this is, this is a sprint. But as we do this, we really want to keep this in mind because what I'm going to suggest and what, what uh, Vaughn Roberts suggests um, is that the whole reason for Israel's existence is not to occupy a piece of ground at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. The whole reason for Israel's existence is to give birth to the serpent God who delivers a people, not for a little parcel of ground at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, but who delivers a people who will occupy the whole of it. Because the whole of the earth is the Lord's. And the Lord establishes a beachhead on that little parcel of ground at the eastern end of the Mediterranean from which he intends to extend his influence through the whole of the world, eventually bringing the whole world into a condition of blessing and prosperity. That's the point. We have to keep Genesis 3.15 in mind as we hear all these promises made later. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Father, I don't know what it's like for anybody else, but this is really fun for me. I love this, and I am grateful for it. And I pray um, that this this story, the great and never-ending story, would more and more really and truly thrill and encourage our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, that you've come. Uh, Thank you that the business, the work of setting people free, delivering them from bondage, from death, from darkness, by the power of your Spirit, through the heralding of the glad tidings of the gospel. Thank you that that work is continuing. Thank you that you are doing it. Thank you that you'll continue doing it until you've rescued every single one for whom you've died. And we look forward to the day when all of that is done and you gather us together in your presence and usher us into the eternal delights and pleasures of the new heaven and the new earth with you, clothed, robed, reigning in glory, seated in the midst of it all. Oh, we thank you, Jesus, that that day is coming. Be with us as we go, as we head into this week. We pray in your name. Amen.